Hello and welcome to the Cybersecurity Cafe podcast. So excited to share with you that as part of an executive briefing session sponsored by Cyber Risk and Know Before, I have a very special guest on the podcast. Kevin Mitnick. I know, very exciting. The Houdini of hacking, part owner of Know Before, chief hacking officer, author. It's going to be fabulous. Did you ever imagine as a young boy who was just so fascinated with magic that this is what your life was going to look like 14 hours a day? Well, kind of how I started on all of this is back when I was 10 years old, I was fascinated with magic. And I was raised by a single mother who worked two jobs at Delicatessens in Los Angeles, California. And she would work long hours and then Kevin would have to find cool stuff to do. And my my favorite thing was to ride my bicycle over to the local magic store in Los Angeles and watch these magicians or sales reps in the store perform these tricks over and over and over again, because I always wanted to get the bite of the forbidden fruit of knowledge, the secret to the magic trick. So fast forward to when I'm in high school, I met this kid who could work magic with a telephone system. And uh, he had these special numbers you can call, like one of them. And mind you, this is in the 1970s. You can call a secret number. It was only known by phone company technicians. And it would tell you the number you're calling from. A computerized voice would read it back. It was called automatic number identification. Another thing is I can call on one number. My friend could call on another, and you'd be secretly joined through a phone company test circuit. So you can give your phone number out. That's not your real number, and you could actually talk to other people. And I became somewhat of a prankster. You know, one of my favorite things to do as a young kid that was kind of a magic trick was to change my friend's home phone to a pay phone So whenever his parents tried to make a call, it would say, please deposit 25 cents. So I used to, you know, do these pranks as a kid. And and this kid that I met in high school also was very adept at a technique called social engineering. I didn't even know what it was at the time, but he can call different departments of the phone company. He knew their terminology. He knew their lingo and was able to sweet talk them out of any information, like if he wanted somebody's unlisted telephone number um, and many things. He could like change the features on a telephone line. Like, for example, he was able to um, break through my parents' call forwarding. So if I call forwarded the number somewhere else, he was able to get around that. And uh, another kid in high school said, hey, you might want to take a computer class. You're so interested in this technology. Maybe you'll want to learn about computers. And at the time, I wasn't so interested in computers. I was interested in amateur radio and telephony. And uh, I met the computer science instructor. I was a freshman. First question he asked me, he goes, are you a senior? No. Have you had calculus? No. Have you had physics? No. Have you had blah, blah, blah? No, no, no. He says, I can't let you into the class. So if I could take you back to the 70s, our computer room existed of an Olivetti 110 baud terminal. Now, I'm not sure how old all of you are, but 110 baud is extremely slow. It's like 10 characters a second. How we used to call into the computer system was we'd have a telephone line, we'd dial up to a modem, we'd put the handset in the acoustic coupler modem, and this is how we communicated. 
So my friend said to the teacher, hey, show Mr. Christ what you can do with the telephone. So I showed him all these cool tricks. And then he goes, hey, the phone that we use for the modem, it doesn't have a phone number on it. And I want my wife to call me during lunch. Can you get the number? So of course I dial the secret number. I'm able to get it. And right away, he takes a liking to me and says, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to waive the prerequisites and allow you into the class. And I'm sure he... <laughs> I'm sure he regrets that decision today as I'm speaking for all of you. I mean, some of us made our way through that journey in similar kind of, yeah, no, I haven't got the maths for encryption, but how about this? That's fantastic. Yeah. So just to finish it up really quick. um, So he gave the class the first programming assignment to write a Fortran program to find the first 100 Fibonacci numbers. I didn't think that was interesting. But remember, I told you they had a Olivetti 100 in Bod. 10 baud terminal, not even a computer, they dial up to uh, PDP 1170 running this operating system called Aristus. And I noticed that the teachers and the students would never hang up the phone when they would log in or log out. They'd keep the phone line connected and they would just type, you know, to the computer, log in, log out, log in, log out each time a different student or teacher used the computer. So I thought a cooler program to write would write a program to actually simulate the operating system. So when a teacher or a student went up to the computer to sign in, they weren't talking to the operating system, they were talking to my program. And my program happily accepted their username and password and went ahead and logged them in and they had no idea. And of course, I had their username and password. And I, I couldn't believe this worked. This was actually the first program I ever coded in my life. So a couple of days later, the teachers in class, everyone had a hand in this Fibonacci assignment. He gets up to my desk, I have nothing. He goes, where's your work? I said, oh, I didn't have time to do it. He goes, I'm going to kick you out of class. You're not doing the work. You didn't even meet the prerequisites. You know, you don't belong in my class. I said, well, I wrote a cooler program. I go, is it your password, Johnco? And he just goes, whoa, you know, like, how did you get my password? I said, I wrote a, I wrote a program to steal it. In fact, I'm going to turn in that program instead of the Fibonacci assignment. And then he took a look at the code on the paper. It was green bar printout. You know, this is back 70s. And he goes, this is awesome. And he shared the code with the rest of the students, gave me a bunch of pats on the back. So this was the ethics talk to young Kevin Mitnick. It's cool to have. <laughs> so that was, that's kind of my foray into all of this um, hacking. It was all about um, magic and learning about telephone systems. And that absolute curiosity, which most of us have in the room because we wouldn't survive being in the cybersecurity profession if we didn't have that as an attribute, right? Can you share, because I love this story, the McDonald's story, please? (laughs) Sure, it's my favorite hack, actually. I did it when I was 16. I was a very avid amateur radio operator. I was a certainly a prankster, you know, at 16. And one of my favorite hacks was to actually take take over remotely the drive-up windows at McDonald's. So rather than the when people would drive up to place their order, rather get the guy inside with the headset, they'd get me. So you can imagine at 16 years old how much fun you could have, right? So big customers would drive up. I'd go ahead and take their order. And I'd say, you're the 100th customer today. Please drive forward. Your order's absolutely free. Other people would drive up. I'd say, you know, may I have your order, please? And they'd give me, you know, give me pretty much the list. High-calorie items, Big Macs, fries, apple pies, Cokes, and all this sort of thing. And if the people were overweight, now mind you, I was 16, I would say, based on the make, model, and weight of the vehicle and the weight of the occupants, I suggest you change your order to the McSalad. (laughs) (laughs) My hands down favorite, 
is when the cops would drive up, I'd go, hide the cocaine, hide the cocaine. <laughs> and uh, eventually the manager of this McDonald's runs out into the parking lot. I could clearly see this guy and he's looking into the cars. He's, you know, trying to look like, how is somebody doing this? He was so confused. And uh, he walked up to the drive up window speaker where you place your order. He bent over and peered inside as if someone could be hiding. In the <laughs> so I keyed down my microphone to my radio. I go, what the hell are you looking at? And this guy, this guy flies back about five feet. So even though, you know, this is like, you know, 40 years ago, it's still one of my favorites. It is absolutely a favorite. Hey, shifting gear a little bit. Um, one of your other favorite subjects, pen testing. You know, we know it's great for baselining our security controls. You've been doing a lot of pen testing lately. Can you talk about some insights that you've been gathering and whether you're starting to see some really interesting patterns? Naturally, you can't talk about customers, but just generally, what are you seeing? Well, we're seeing a lot of companies that are very susceptible to phishing attacks. In fact, I advertise on my website that we have a 100% success rate when clients allow us to use social engineering and scope of the engagement. And that's not just limited to phishing. It's also pretext phone calls. In fact, I think pretext phone calls are even more powerful than phishing. That's where you have bad actors that call people inside the organization. They pretend to be intercompany or they pretend to be, you know, an outside vendor. This is the exact tradecraft I learned from that kid in high school, by the way, when he was calling up different phone company departments. This is kind of where I learned this when I was about 16 years old. And this, this tradecraft is still being used today. Um, what was it, three, four, five months ago, if I'm getting the timing right, Twitter was compromised. And you remember all the celebrities, including Joe Biden, were having these malicious tweets from their account. And how this kid did it is he was calling people at home, pretending to be from the IT department at Twitter, and they set up a web page and they convinced employees that they had to log into the VPN, but they had a they were setting up a new system. Please go to this web page. Please try to log into the new VPN service. And they were able to capture their credentials because obviously they were putting in their username and password. And even if people are using two-factor authentication, there are there's techniques and tactics that the bad actors could use to capture the session keys, which are the cookies that that authentic. You know, when you log in and you're authenticated, you have what you call a session cookie. And so they're able to steal the cookie so they could load that into their browser and, and be authenticated to like uh, Twitter's VPN. So this type of tradecraft, social engineering, hands down the number one way in of bad actors. And second, I would say password spraying. What is password spraying? It's not trying a credential against one particular user in the organization because you're going to get locked. Well, the bad actor is going to get locked out after five attempts. Hopefully, if you configured uh, the domain controller correctly or the, and the security policies, but um, but what password spraying is is where you try a single password, like summer 2021, uh, maybe summer 2021 with an exclamation point, maybe the company name 2021 and the company name 2021 with an exclamation point, and you try that password not against one user but against all the users in the organization. Now. A bad actor can't do this against the domain controller because they're external. So what they do is they do this against email services like uh, G Suite or Office 365 that a lot of companies use or anything that's internet facing that they're exposing like a VPN or, or it could be right now we're working with a client that has Citrix that's uh, exposed you know, publicly to the internet. So 
in the last, I'd say, six engagements, password spraying was the way in. And in the last engagement, um, there was an exchange vulnerability, not the exchange vulnerability that you heard about, uh, you know, the bad actors in China recently exploiting. This is one that was one prior. And if you had valid user credentials for any employee, you could exploit this exchange flaw to gain complete control over that exchange server and then laterally move and compromise other assets within the organization. So password spraying, number two. Third is internet-facing applications. We see a lot of vulnerabilities with respect to applications that are poorly coded. Um, don't forget, you know, some developers, unfortunately, aren't trained in secure development, the secure development lifecycle, and they leave, you know, through poor, poor coding practices, we could find these flaws and exploit them. So there are a number of ways to get in. And what I'm learning is the, the good news is when we're delivering reports to our clients, they're actually taking these recommendations and implementing them. For example, I tested one client three years ago, and we're going through another engagement this week. And actually, um, it's a very hard target now because in the first test, they actually implemented each and every recommendation. And now it's really making it super difficult to get in. How we're able to get in this time was um, password spray against service accounts. You know, we're able to find their service accounts. A lot of organizations, even though we told them change everyone's passwords, set you know these different complexity policies, what they do is they leave the service accounts, you know, they hardly change them and they leave them with weak passwords. So we're able to get into the VPN uh, that way. So there's, you know, I always think that the best way to test your company's security controls is actually put it through a true test and have a company that could, you know, simulate an adversary and see how far they can get to compromise the organization so you know where your weak links are. Couldn't agree more. I um, last year pen tested 67 legacy applications, not me personally. And just the amount of flaws that we found in all those legacy applications was just phenomenal. You know, enough remediation, you know, to take me through to retirement, if you like. Uh, look, the bad guys are getting better and they're using AI and they're using other sorts of techniques. You know, some tips. What are you thinking when you think about this problem? Well, AI definitely, you know, obviously in defence, a lot of the security vendors are implementing AI and machine learning. It's kind of a buzzword that you hear uh, bandied about at every security conference you go to. Uh, and uh, the, the, the issue is, is sophisticated threat actors, especially nation state actors in Russia and China, um, have used AI to weaponize their attacks. And where this could really be used uh, pretty effectively is on phishing attacks because the bad actors could get samplings of emails from inside the organization and through artificial intelligence, analyze emails, analyze how somebody writes, analyze who they talk to, the subjects they speak about. The, the bad actor could now even inject in the middle of an email chain that maybe one party sees a phishing attack. And in the more successful phishing attacks that work today, it's not on the initial email that, that contains like a malicious hyperlink or a malicious attachment. It's when it's kind of like the long con is where the bad actors are having, you know, a conversation 
with somebody inside the organization. And then at one point where they have that trust and credibility, that's where they actually do the attack. And what AI lets bad actors do is not open, uh, not only weaponize phishing attacks for better business email compromise, uh, better, you know, having better trust and credibility when executing a spear phishing attacks, but also in malware. Because if you could, you know, have artificial intelligence analyze the traffic on the network, the protocols that are being used, the, you know, what a person is doing on their computer, the hours they're working, um, and basically get intelligence from that particular network and then weaponize their malware to avoid detection. And I think one of the uh, examples of this that we've recently seen, however, I don't know if the Russian Federation actually used AI in this process, is the whole um, um, uh, solar winds, the solar winds uh, supply chain, uh, you know, update vulnerability that we all have heard about. And I have to wonder, since that malware sat for two to three weeks before becoming active, in other words, doing active attacks, did during that downtime, did it get telemetry, pass that telemetry to the GRU, and in their analysis of updated the malware, the malware to work differently through artificial intelligence. And uh, so that's where I think the focus is and is really phishing business email compromise and using AI to better, from an offensive viewpoint, to weaponize malware. Yeah, very insightful. Thank you. We all realize that we can throw technology at this problem and the car's drivable and it, the brakes are working, but we really know that we need to up the ante on the human risk side of it, which is something that you're also incredibly passionate about and you build in, in your business. You know, I say to people, look, don't go hard fishing first. You know, you've got to bit layer, layer the people in the organisation, get their buy-in first, make sure that you're sort of starting from a baseline so that you're not hitting them with something that they're going to fail on first time, right? Yeah, in fact, like let's say we're going to fish a law firm. The first step is finding out, well, what type of uh, practices does this law firm do? Let's say they do, well, today is tax day in the United States. Um, so let's say, you're, you, let's say that a particular firm practices uh, tax law. And now a bad actor, or if you're doing penetration testing, you want to now be able to go into this, you know, obviously approach the law firm in such a way where you have trust and credibility. So rather than trying to, spoof an email address from the inside, which is difficult today, you can go in as a potential new customer. Uh, and during this initial contact, you're going to you know, be passed to an associate, of course. They're going to have a conversation with you that could be by email. And then you know, maybe on the third, fourth email, you say, well, I need you to review these materials. You know, I'll be happy to pay for it or I need, I need a quote. You know, let me send you these materials on, my, on maybe some corporate issues or whatever. And then the, the attacker sends a weaponized PDF file, for example, and then it's trusted. They already have a conversation. They feel comfortable with you and they open up that attachment. The attachment's not sent in an email. It's actually like a, a Google Drive link, right? So they're actually clicking a link to download the attachment. So a lot of the EDRs that analyze attachments that they're sending email, they're not really analyzing that attachment. You know, uh, they're doing it in a different way if it's sent through like OneDrive or a Google link, they download it, they open it up. And if they're running a vulnerable version of Adobe that that's been weaponized for, well, it's pretty much game over because the bad actor is able to execute their own commands 
through that weaponized attachment, which could drop onto that endpoint malware that gives the bad actor persistent access. And the issue with that is that we need a lot of mitigating strategies along that path. Layered. Yeah, lots of layering. That's right. So first of all, is training you know, your front-end people, building that human firewall, you know, uh, creating an environment where people are critically thinking about you know how you know when they're receiving telephone calls when they're receiving emails with hyperlinks and attachments you know essentially training those people about what threats are out there but not only training them actually doing simulated attacks you know simulated phishing maybe in simulated pretext phone calls you know keeping keeping the employees on their toes and unfortunately there's always going to be attacks to get through there's always going to be uh, one or more people inside the organization even though they receive training they're having a bad day their, their mind is what we call in heuristic mode. They're thinking about some problems in their home life. So their, their mind is not 100% there. And they take these mental shortcuts and they still fall for these phishing attacks. That's where you need a defensive layer where maybe giving the opportunity of that person, hey, you know, we noticed you're going to click on this link, but it might be malicious. Do you really want to do it? And give, give the end user that opportunity to maybe click or not. The other thing is layering your technologies with a you know new state-of-the-art EDR. And EDR, as opposed to AV, when we think about AV, we think about like Symantec, Trend Micro, Sophos, and all these others that are out there. When I'm thinking of EDR, I'm thinking of uh, Carbon Black, uh, Endgame, CrowdStrike Falcon, and these more, uh, these more sophisticated EDRs that actually look at telemetry in analyzing threats. So... You know, you have your human firewall, you, you, you might have those technologies that give employees a second chance, and then you might drop down to the EDR that um, hopefully will detect a threat if the malicious actor is dropping a payload. Unfortunately, a lot of these EDRs can't detect credential harvesting attacks. Credential harvesting attacks is a phishing attack where the victim is tricked into putting their username and password. Uh, and that could be even username, password, and two-factor if they're using publicly available tools like Evil Jinx. Evil Jinx, is a, Evil Jinx is a tool that was developed by this guy in Poland that allows you to capture, like I mentioned earlier, the session keys to basically fish people, even though they have two-factor authentication to get access to their uh, account. Yeah. That's tough, isn't it? <laughs> you know, it's like, where do we go? From- it's a huge problem because, you know, what I do is I do offensive work in my company. We do pen testing and we're pretty, you know, we've always been successful at compromising our client In some engagements we get where we can't use social engineering. Um, we get to the point like on a web application that we could do something that is a problem, but maybe not get, you know, full access to the enterprise because social engineering wasn't part of the um, uh, engagement. And what we're finding is we're extremely successful at compromising our targets. So then I have to think that when we're dealing with sophisticated bad actors these days, they're also extremely uh, successful in you know committing their crimes. And I think we've seen this literally this week uh, with uh, Colonial Pipeline, where uh, these sophisticated bad actors, I don't know if it was phishing, I don't know if they had an, ex- you know, an internet-facing uh, remote desktop or RDP box uh, with weak credentials, but there's different uh, theories that are being uh, put out into the press. But of course, we know the whole story there with a colonial pipeline and the damage 
uh, that it's done, this ransomware, you know, they ended up paying five million bucks. And at the same time, it's really disrupted uh, gas stations in America on the eastern seaboard of the, of the country. Uh, people can't put gas into their tanks. Uh, it's become an infrastructure problem and a very serious problem at that. I mean, ultimately, without being too contentious, we need a Geneva Convention that says these things are off limit health. And this disruption is, is just making it really difficult. And also some debate about paying or not paying ransomware as well, that, you know, it's proceeds of crime, right? I think we'll probably leave that one for another time. I think it's up to the business owner. You know, of course, we don't want to compensate criminals. And the whole ecosystem of ransomware works because people pay. But you got to, you know, understand it from a small business owner's viewpoint that if they're down, they're, 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 you know, they're losing business by the minute and they're just going to do a cost benefit analysis and, and a risk analysis. If it's going to cost me a million bucks to try to recover, try to, you know, bring in the IT guy, restore from maybe uh, a week old backups because, you know, we did backups on a weekly basis rather than a daily basis. You know, I'm talking about SMB and it's going to cost me, you know, a million bucks, you know, to, to, to recover. Yet these uh, ransomware operators wanted me to pay 50 grand. Yeah, and I know it's like going to the you know Crown or Star Casino and you know you know playing roulette because you might not get the decryptor to decrypt your data, but it's a fifty thousand dollar risk, you know. And as a business owner, are you willing to take that risk to recover for fifty thousand versus a million? So you know, unfortunately, these victims are put in you know put into this very uncomfortable situation where they have to make that decision, and a lot you know. And a lot of you know victims pay. In in fact, police departments in America actually are paying ransoms. So even go, even the government. But it's interesting that the FBI says under no circumstances should you pay. Yet other government agencies and law enforcement at a state level are paying for these uh, are paying ransoms. And it goes to show you that we can't depend on any government agency or regulatory agency to defend our. Uh, to defend our companies, we have to depend on ourselves. And that's what, what we have to do is we, com- we have to become better at protecting our IT assets. Yeah, it's ultimately our business risk. I'm hearing what you're saying and our decision. Just before we close, I've just got a couple of questions from some folks in the audience, if I may. So Alison Stretch, who's sitting beside me, who's GM of Cyber at ME Bank, just based on your experience, Top one, top two actions that we could take to reduce risk with social engineering? Obviously, training, simulated phishing, uh, if possible, simulated uh, pretext calls, you know, really keeping people, you know, and, and not just doing this once a month, you know, maybe on a more frequent basis, because as the threats change out, out there, as the tradecraft of the bad actors are changing, you want to make sure you update your human workforce. And let them know about the scam because if people are educated about the scam, they're less likely to fall for it. So I, you know, and again, it goes to layering your technologies, it goes to training, it goes to simulated attacks to keep people on their toes, uh, you know, using a third-party company to do actually social engineering pen testing to see to get, kind of get some metrics behind how well the bank is doing at mitigating these types of threats. And of course, layering the technological controls like EDRs uh, under that. Thank you. And one last one, which is from Wayne Tufek, who's Director of Cyber Risk, is sponsoring today's launch, is 
So securing more with less, you know, in the digital world, you know, what do we focus on? Bang for buck because they're cutting our budgets, Kevin. Yeah, that's unfortunate. I mean, it really depends on the organization. Like, you know, in the last few assignments that I've had, I've identified network segmentation as being one of the biggest problems. So once a bad actor is able to compromise a victim through like a phishing attack, for example, or they or through a password spray, they're able to get some sort of foothold inside the network that um, that companies are running like older protocols that allow bad actors to use technological tricks to elevate their privileges inside the network. And also getting into, for example, through password spraying into email. And then now that person, that that attacker is now sending phishing attacks from a trusted email account inside the organization, right? So we see a lot of that. Network segmentation, you know, user education and training, uh, having a different approach to password management. Um, recently, we tested a client, like I mentioned, they had a vulnerable exchange server, didn't patch it for, and it's internet facing, didn't patch it for many months, you know, patch management, you know, um, so patch management, uh, network segmentation, user education and training. Um, let me think of any of the other detection. You know, I really think a lot of the, the threats out there, you can't really prevent because if you have a bad actor, especially a nation state that has enough time, money, and resources to break in and you are a target, it's likely they're going to be able to do it. That's the unfortunate truth. So what you want to be able to do, obviously, is set up your controls in such a way that you're going to detect any bad actor activity. So I'd look at the different technologies that are out there to detect, um, obviously, malicious traffic, uh, exfiltration of data. For example, when we're doing uh, penetration testing, our clients allow us to, you know, usually under rules of engagement that we're allowed to exfiltrate data that we think a bad actor would do, and then we'll destroy it after the engagement. But in I, all the tests that I've done since 2004, and that's, you know, we're dealing well, well, you know, almost 20 years, in every engagement, no client has detected exfiltration of data. Nobody is, you know, and we tell our clients, we set them up on our Slack channel. Hey, if you recognize any malicious traffic, please, you know, ping us on Slack and let us know what's going on. So we could first let you know it's us. And secondly, you know, take further direction. And so I think companies, especially financial institutions, and I tested one of the three large credit bureaus in America. There's three of them that are the the, uh, premier credit bureaus. We tested one of them. uh, I, I tested it several years ago. And I was able to exfiltrate gigabytes of data without detection. So I realized there's a consistent systemic problem throughout many enterprises as they're not doing a good job at detecting data exfiltration. So I think that really needs improvement. And thank you so much for your time. Please give Kevin a great work. Thank you. And just enjoy your time in Australia. You do have a similar sense of humor to us, I noticed. Yeah, the, the cool thing is, is um, I'm, you know, I'm a permanent resident of Australia. So I've been granted by the government, uh, you know, a while back, what they call a distinguished talent visa. So which makes me a permanent resident. So I'm actually now Australian in such a way, but I'm not, <laughs> I didn't move here yet. I still live in the United States. All my businesses, all my contacts are there, but I'm looking to maybe two, three years down the line, move here on a more permanent basis 
Um, but you got to think, how did they get into the country with COVID? They shut the borders. So you, you only could get in if you're a citizen or you're a permanent resident. So I've been a permanent resident for a while. So it's actually an honor to be a permanent resident of Australia. I love the country. I think uh, the people here are fantastic. So it's really been an honor to be granted this visa so I could stay here long term. Enjoy the Sunshine Coast beaches. Oh, yes. Main beach. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. All right. Thank you. Have a great day and stay safe, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Cybersecurity Cafe podcast. You can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter or all the W's, cybersecuritycafe.com.au.